Section 17 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Chapter 7 In which Mr. Allworthy appears on a sick bed. Mr. Western had become so fond of Jones that he was unwilling to part with him, though his arm had been long since cured. And Jones, either from the love of sport, or for some other reason, was easily persuaded to continue at his house, which he did sometimes for a fortnight together without paying a single visit at Mr. Allworthy's, nay, without ever hearing from thence. Mr. Allworthy had been for some days indisposed with a cold, which had been attended with a little fever. This he had, however, neglected, as it was usual with him to do all manner of disorders, which did not confine him to his bed, or prevent his several faculties from performing their ordinary functions. A conduct which we would by no means be thought to approve, or recommend to imitation. For surely the gentlemen of the Escalapian art are in the right in advising, that the moment the disease has entered at one door, the physician should be introduced at the other. What else is meant by that old adage, venienti ocurrite morbo, oppose a distemper at its first approach? Thus the doctor and the disease meet in fair and equal conflict, whereas, by giving time to the latter, we often suffer him to fortify and entrench himself like a French army so that the learned gentleman finds it very difficult, and sometimes impossible, to come at the enemy. Nay, sometimes, by gaining time, the disease applies to the French military politics, and corrupts nature over to his side, and then all the powers of physic must arrive too late. Agreeable to these observations was, I remember, the complaint of the great Dr. Masaban, who used very pathetically to lament the late applications which were made to his skill, saying, Begar, me believe my patient take me for the undertaker, for they never send for me till the physician have killed em. Mr. Allworthy's distemper, by means of this neglect, gained such ground that, when the increase of his fever obliged him to send for assistance, the doctor at his first arrival shook his head, wished he had been sent for sooner, and intimated that he thought him in very imminent danger. Mr. Allworthy, who had settled all his affairs in this world, and was as well prepared as it is possible for human nature to be for the other, received this information with the utmost calmness and unconcern. He could, indeed, whenever he laid himself down to rest, say with Cato in the tragical poem, Let guilt or fear disturb man's rest. Cato knows neither of them, indifferent in his choice to sleep or die. In reality, he could say this with ten times more reason and confidence than Cato, or any other proud fellow among the ancient or modern heroes, for he was not only devoid of fear, but might be considered as a faithful laborer, 
when at the end of harvest he is summoned to receive his reward at the hands of a bountiful master the good man gave immediate orders for all his family to be summoned round him none of these were then abroad but mrs blifil who had been some time in london and mr jones whom the reader hath just parted from at mr western's and who received the summons just as sophia had left him the news of mr allworthy's danger for the servants told him he was dying drove all thoughts of love out of his head he hurried instantly into the chariot which was sent for him and ordered the coachman to drive with all imaginable haste nor did the idea of sophia i believe once occur to him on the way and now the whole family namely mr blifil mr jones mr thwackham mr square and some of the servants for such were mr allworthy's orders being all assembled round his bed the good man sat up in it and was beginning to speak when blifil fell to blubbering and began to express very loud and bitter lamentations upon this mr allworthy shook him by the hand and said do not sorrow thus my dear nephew at the most ordinary of all human occurrences when misfortunes befall our friends we are justly grieved for those are accidents which might often have been avoided and which may seem to render the lot of one man more peculiarly unhappy than that of others but death is certainly unavoidable and is that common lot in which alone the fortunes of all men agree nor is the time when this happens to us very material if the wisest of men hath compared life to a span surely we may be allowed to consider it as a day it is my fate to leave it in the evening but those who are taken away earlier have only lost a few hours at the best little worth lamenting and much oftener hours of labour and fatigue of pain and sorrow one of the roman poets i remember likens our leaving life to our departure from a feast a thought which hath often occurred to me when i have seen men struggling to protract an entertainment and to enjoy the company of their friends a few moments longer alas how short is the most protracted of such enjoyments how immaterial the difference between him who retires the soonest and him who stays the latest this is seeing life in the best view and this unwillingness to quit our friends is the most amiable motive from which we can derive the fear of death and yet the longest enjoyment which we can hope for of this kind is of so trivial a duration that it is to a wise man truly contemptible few men i own think in this manner for indeed few men think of death till they are in its jaws however gigantic and terrible an object this may appear when it approaches them they are nevertheless incapable of seeing it at any distance nay though they have been ever so much alarmed and frightened when they have apprehended themselves in danger of dying they are no sooner cleared from this apprehension 
then even the fears of it are erased from their minds. But alas, he who escapes from death is not pardoned. He is only reprieved, and reprieved to a short day. Grieve therefore no more, my dear child, on this occasion, an event which may happen every hour, which every element, nay, almost every particle of matter that surrounds us, is capable of producing, and which must and will most unavoidably reach us all at last, ought neither to occasion our surprise nor our lamentation. My physician having acquainted me, which I take very kindly of him, that I am in danger of leaving you all very shortly, I have determined to say a few words to you at this, our parting, before my distemper, which I find grows very fast upon me, puts it out of my power. But I shall waste my strength too much. I intend to speak concerning my will, which, though I have settled long ago, I think proper to mention such heads of it, as concern any of you, that I may have the comfort of perceiving you are all satisfied with the provision I have there made for you. Nephew Blyfell, I leave you the heir to my whole estate, except only five hundred pounds a year, which is to revert to you after the death of your mother, and except one other estate of five hundred pounds a year, and the sum of six thousand pounds, which I have bestowed in the following manner. The estate of five hundred pounds a year I have given to you, Mr. Jones, and as I know the inconvenience which attends the want of ready money, I have added one thousand pounds in specie. In this I know not whether I have exceeded or fallen short of your expectation. Perhaps you will think I have given you too little, and the world will be as ready to condemn me for giving you too much. But the latter censure I despise, and as to the former, unless you should entertain that common error, which I have often heard in my life, pleaded as an excuse for a total want of charity, namely, that instead of raising gratitude by voluntary acts of bounty, we are apt to raise demands, which of all others are the most boundless and most difficult to satisfy. Pardon me the bare mention of this. I will not suspect any such thing. Jones flung himself at his benefactor's feet, and taking eagerly hold of his hand, assured him his goodness to him, both now and all other times, had so infinitely exceeded not only his merit, but his hopes, that no words could express his sense of it. And I assure you, sir, said he, your present generosity hath left me no other concern than for the present melancholy occasion. Oh, my friend, my father! Here his words choked him, and he turned away to hide a tear which was starting from his eye. Allworthy then gently squeezed his hand, and proceeded thus. I am convinced, my child, that you have much goodness, generosity, and honour in your temper. If you will add prudence and religion to these, you must be happy. For the three former qualities, I admit, make you worthy of happiness but they are the latter only which will put you in possession of it. 
one thousand pounds i have given to you mr thwackum a sum i am convinced which greatly exceeds your desires as well as your wants however you will receive it as a memorial of my friendship and whatever superfluities may redound to you that piety which you so rigidly maintain will instruct you how to dispose of them a like sum mr square i have bequeathed to you this i hope will enable you to pursue your profession with better success than hitherto i have often observed with concern that distress is more apt to excite contempt than commiseration especially among men of business with whom poverty is understood to indicate want of ability but the little i have been able to leave you will extricate you from those difficulties with which you have formerly struggled and then i doubt not but you will meet with sufficient prosperity to supply what a man of your philosophical temper will require i find myself growing faint so i shall refer you to my will for my disposition of the residue my servants will there find some tokens to remember me by and there are few charities which i trust my executors will see faithfully performed bless you all i am setting out a little before you here a footman came hastily into the room and said there was an attorney from salisbury who had a particular message which he said he must communicate to mr allworthy himself that he seemed in a violent hurry and protested he had so much business to do that if he could cut himself into four quarters all would not be sufficient go child said allworthy to blifil see what the gentleman wants i am not able to do business now nor can he have any with me in which you are not at present more concerned than myself besides i really am i am incapable of seeing any one at present or of any longer attention he then saluted them all saying perhaps he should be able to see them again but he should be now glad to compose himself a little finding that he had too much exhausted his spirits in discourse some of the company shed tears at their parting and even the philosopher square wiped his eyes albeit unused to the melting mood as to mrs wilkins she dropped her pearls as fast as the arabian trees their medicinal gums for this was a ceremonial which that gentlewoman never omitted on a proper occasion after this mr allworthy again laid himself down on his pillow and endeavoured to compose himself to rest chapter eight containing matter rather natural than pleasing besides grief for her master there was another source for that briny stream which so plentifully rose above the two mountainous cheekbones of the housekeeper she was no sooner retired than she began to mutter to herself in the following pleasant strain sure master might have made some difference methinks between me and the other servants i suppose he hath left me mourning but i fackins if that be all the devil shall wear it for him for me i'd have his worship know i am no beggar i have saved five hundred pounds in his service and after all to be used in this manner 
it is a fine encouragement to servants to be honest and to be sure if i have taken a little something now and then others have taken ten times as much and now we are all put in a lump together if so be that it be so the legacy may go to the devil with him that gave it no i won't give it up neither because that will please some folks no i'll buy the gayest gown i can get and dance over the old curmudgeon's grave in it this is my reward for taking his part so often when all the country have cried shame of him for breeding up his bastard in that manner but he is going now where he must pay for all it would have become him better to have repented of his sins on his deathbed than to glory in them and give away his estate out of his own family to a misbegotten child found in his bed forsooth a pretty story ay ay those that hide know where to find lord forgive him i warrant he hath many more bastards to answer for if the truth was known one comfort is they will all be known where he is going now the servants will find some token to remember me by those were the very words i shall never forget them if i was to live a thousand years ay ay i shall remember you for huddling me among the servants one would have thought he might have mentioned my name as well as that of square but he is a gentleman forsooth though he had not cloths on his back when he come hither first mary come up with such gentlemen though he hath lived here this many years i don't believe there is arrow servant in the house ever saw the colour of his money the devil shall wait upon such a gentleman for me much more of the like kind she muttered to herself but this taste shall suffice to the reader neither thwackum nor square were much better satisfied with their legacies though they breathed not their resentment so loud yet from the discontent which appeared in their countenances as well as from the following dialogue we collect that no great pleasure reigned in their minds about an hour after they had left the sick-room square met thwackum in the hall and accosted him thus well sir have you heard any news of your friend since we parted from him if you mean mr allworthy answered thwackum i think you might rather give him the appellation of your friend for he seems to me to have deserved that title the title is as good on your side replied square for his pounty such as it is hath been equal to both i should not have mentioned it first cries thwackum but since you begin i must inform you i am of a different opinion there is a wide distinction between voluntary favors and rewards the duty i have done in his family and the care i have taken in the education of his two boys are services for which some men might have expected a greater return i would not have you imagine i am therefore dissatisfied for St. Paul hath taught me to be content with the little I have. Had the modicum been less, I should have known my duty, but though the Scriptures obliges me to remain contented, it doth not enjoin me to shut my eyes to my own merit, nor restrain me from seeing when I am injured by an unjust comparison. Since you provoke me, returned Square, that injury is done to me nor did i ever imagine mr allworthy had held my friendship so light 
as to put me in balance with one who received his wages. I know to what it is owing. It proceeds from those narrow principles which you have been so long endeavouring to infuse into him, in contempt of everything which is great and noble. The beauty and loveliness of friendship is too strong for demise, nor can it be perceived by any other medium than that unerring rule of right which you have so often endeavoured to ridicule that you have perverted your friend's understanding. I wish, cries Thwackum, in a rage, I wish for the sake of his soul your damnable doctrines have not perverted his faith. It is to this I impute his present behaviour, so unbecoming a Christian. Who but an atheist could think of leaving the world without having first made up his account, without confessing his sins, and receiving that absolution which he knew he had one in the house duly authorised to give him? He will feel the want of these necessaries when it is too late, when he is arrived at that place where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. It is then he will find in what mighty stead that heathen goddess, that virtue which you and all other deists of the age adore, will stand him. He will then summon his priest, when there is none to be found, and will lament the want of that absolution without which no sinner can be safe. If it be so material, says Square, why don't you present it him of your own accord? It hath no virtue, cries Thwackum, but to those who have sufficient grace to require it. But why do I talk thus to a heathen and an unbeliever? It is you that taught him this lesson, for which you have been well rewarded in this world, as I doubt not your disciple will soon be in the other. I know not what you mean by reward, said Square, but if you hint at that pitiful memorial of our friendship which he hath thought fit to bequeath me, I despise it, and nothing but the unfortunate situation of my circumstances should prevail on me to accept it. The physician now arrived, and began to inquire of the two disputants how we all did above stairs. "'In a miserable way,' answered Thwackum. "'It is no more than I expected,' cries the doctor. "'But pray, what symptoms have appeared since I left you?' "'No good ones, I'm afraid,' replied Thwackum. "'After what passed at our departure, I think there were little hopes.' The bodily physician, perhaps, misunderstood the cure of souls, and before they came to an explanation— Mr. Blifil came to them with a most melancholy countenance, and acquainted them that he brought sad news that his mother was dead at Salisbury, that she had been seized on the road home with the gout in her head and stomach which had carried her off in a few hours. "'Good lack-a-day,' said the doctor. "'One cannot answer for events. But I wish I had been at hand to have been called in.' The gout is a distemper which it is difficult to treat, yet I have been remarkably successful in it. Thwackham and Square both condoled with Mr. Blifil for the loss of his mother, which the one advised him to bear like a man, and the other like a Christian. 
The young gentleman said he knew very well we were all mortal, and he would endeavor to submit to his loss as well as he could. That he could not, however, help complaining a little against the peculiar severity of his fate, which brought the news of so great a calamity to him by surprise, and that at a time when he hourly expected the severest blow he was capable of feeling from the malice of fortune. He said the present occasion would put to the test those excellent rudiments which he had learned from Mr. Thwackham and Mr. Square, and it would be entirely owing to them if he was enabled to survive such misfortunes. It was now debated whether Mr. Allworthy should be informed of the death of his sister. This the doctor violently opposed, in which, I believe, the whole college would agree with him. But Mr. Blifel said he had received such positive and repeated orders from his uncle never to keep any secret from him for fear of the disquietude which it might give him, that he durst not think of disobedience, whatever might be the consequence. He said, for his part, considering the religious and philosophic temper of his uncle, he could not agree with the doctor in his apprehensions. He was therefore resolved to communicate it to him. For if his uncle recovered, as he heartily prayed he might, he knew he would never forgive an endeavor to keep a secret of this kind from him. The physician was forced to submit to these resolutions, which the two other learned gentlemen very highly commended. So together moved Mr. Blifel and the doctor toward the sick-room, where the physician first entered, and approached the bed in order to feel his patient's pulse, which he had no sooner done than he declared he was much better, that the last application had succeeded to a miracle, and had brought the fever to intermit. So that, he said, there appeared now to be as little danger as he had before apprehended there were hopes. To say the truth, Mr. Allworthy's situation had never been so bad as the great caution of the doctor had represented it. But, as a wise general never despises his enemy, however inferior that enemy's force may be, so neither doth a wise physician ever despise a distemper, however inconsiderable. As the former preserves the same strict discipline, places the same guards, and employs the same scouts, though the enemy be never so weak, so the latter maintains the same gravity of countenance, and shakes his head with the same significant air, let the distemper be never so trifling. And both, among many other good ones, may assign this solid reason for their conduct, that by these means the greater glory redounds to them if they gain the victory, and the less disgrace, if by any unlucky accident, they should happen to be conquered. Mr. Allworthy had no sooner lifted up his head, and thanked heaven for these hopes of his recovery, than Mr. Blifel drew near, with a very dejected aspect, and having applied his handkerchief to his eye, either to wipe away his tears, or to do as Ovid somewhere expresses himself on another occasion, si nullus erit, tamen excud nullum. If there be none, then wipe away that none. He communicated to his uncle what the reader hath been just before acquainted with. 
Allworthy received the news with concern, with patience, and with resignation. He dropped a tender tear, then composed his countenance, and at last cried, The Lord's will be done in everything. He now inquired for the messenger, but Mr. Blifel told him it had been impossible to detain him a moment, for he appeared, by the great hurry he was in, to have some business of importance on his hands, that he complained of being hurried and driven and torn out of his life, and repeated many times that if he could divide himself into four quarters, he knew how to dispose of every one. Allworthy then desired Blifel to take care of the funeral. He said he would have his sister deposited in his own chapel, and as to the particulars, he left them to his own discretion, only mentioning the person whom he would have employed on this occasion. CHAPTER Nine, WHICH, AMONG OTHER THINGS, MAY SERVE AS A COMMENT ON THAT SAYING OF Aeschines THAT DRUNKENNESS SHOWS THE MIND OF A MAN, AS A MIRROR REFLECTS HIS PERSON. The reader may perhaps wonder at hearing nothing of Mr. Jones in the last chapter, in fact, his behavior was so different from that of the persons there mentioned, that we chose not to confound his name with theirs. When the good man had ended his speech, Jones was the last who deserted the room. Thence he retired to his own apartment, to give vent to his concern. But the restlessness of his mind would not suffer him to remain long there, he slipped softly, therefore, to Allworthy's chamber door, where he listened a considerable time without hearing any kind of motion within, unless a violent snoring, which at last his fears misrepresented as groans. This so alarmed him that he could not forbear entering the room, where he found the good man in the bed in a sweet composed sleep, and his nurse snoring in the above-mentioned hearty manner at the bed's feet. He immediately took the only method of silencing this thorough bass, whose music he feared might disturb Mr. Allworthy, and then, sitting down by the nurse, he remained motionless till Blifel and the doctor came in together and waked the sick man in order that the doctor might feel his pulse, and that the other might communicate to him that piece of news which, had Jones been apprised of it, would have had great difficulty of finding its way to Mr. Allworthy's ear at such a season. When he first heard Blifel tell his uncle this story, Jones could hardly contain the wrath which kindled in him at the other's indiscretion, especially as the doctor shook his head and declared his unwillingness to have the matter mentioned to his patient. But as his passion did not so far deprive him of all use of his understanding as to hide him from the consequences which any violent expression towards Blifel might have on the sick, this apprehension stilled his rage at the present, and he grew afterwards so satisfied with finding that this news had, in fact, produced no mischief, that he suffered his anger to die in his own bosom without ever mentioning it to Blifel. The physician dined that day at Mr. Allworthy's, and having after dinner visited his patient, he returned to the company and told them that he had now the satisfaction to say, with assurance, that his patient was out of all danger, 
that he had brought his fever to a perfect intermission, and doubted not by throwing in the bark to prevent its return. This account so pleased Jones, and threw him into such immoderate excess of rapture, that he might be truly said to be drunk with joy, an intoxication which greatly forwards the effects of wine, and as he was very free too with the bottle on this occasion, for he drank many bumpers to the doctor's health, as well as to other toasts, he became very soon literally drunk. Jones had naturally violent animal spirits. These being set on float and augmented by the spirit of wine, produced most extravagant effects. He kissed the doctor, and embraced him with the most passionate endearments, swearing that next to Mr. Allworthy himself, he loved him of all men living. Doctor, added he, you deserve a statue to be erected to you at the public expense, for having preserved a man who is not only the darling of all good men who know him, but a blessing to society, the glory of his country, and an honor to human nature. Don me if I don't love him better than my own soul. More shame for you, cries Thwackum, though I think you have a reason to love him, for he hath provided very well for you. And perhaps it might have been better for some folks that he had not lived to see just reason for revoking his gift. Jones now looking on Thwackum with inconceivable disdain, answered, And dost thy mean soul imagine that any such considerations could weigh with me? No, let the earth open and swallow her own dirt. If I had millions of acres, I would say it, rather than swallow up my dear glorious friend. Quis desiderio sit pudor aut modus, dam carigapitis. What modesty or measure can set bounds to our desire of so dear a friend? The word desiderium here cannot be easily translated. It includes our desire of enjoying our friend again, and the grief which attends that desire. The doctor now interposed, and prevented the effects of a wrath which was kindling between Jones and Thwackum, after which the former gave a loose to mirth, sang two or three amorous songs, and fell into every frantic disorder which unbridled joy is apt to inspire. But so far was he from any disposition to quarrel, that he was ten times better humoured, if possible, than when he was sober. To say truth, nothing is more erroneous than the common observation that men who are ill-natured and quarrelsome when they are drunk, are very worthy persons when they are sober. For drink, in reality, doth not reverse nature, or create passions in men which did not exist in them before. It takes away the guard of reason, and consequently forces us to produce those symptoms which many, when sober, have art enough to conceal. It heightens and inflames our passions, generally indeed that passion which is uppermost in our mind, so that the angry temper, the amorous, the generous, the good-humoured, the avaricious, and all other dispositions of men, are in their cups heightened and exposed. And yet, as no nation produces so many drunken quarrels, 
especially among the lower people, as England, for indeed with them to drink and to fight together are almost synonymous terms. I would not, methinks, have it thence concluded that the English are the worst-natured people alive. Perhaps the love of glory only is at the bottom of this, so that the fair conclusion seems to be that our countrymen have more of that love and more of bravery than any other plebeians, and this the rather as there is seldom anything ungenerous, unfair, or ill-natured exercised on these occasions. Nay, it is common for the combatants to express good-will for each other, even at the time of the conflict, and as their drunken mirth generally ends in a battle, so do most of their battles end in friendship. But to return to our history. Though Jones had shown no design of giving offence, yet Mr. Blifel was highly offended at a behaviour which was so inconsistent with the sober and prudent reserve of his own temper. He bore it, too, with the greater impatience, as it appeared to him very indecent at the season, when, as he said, the house was a house of mourning, on the account of his dear mother, and if it had pleased heaven to give him some respect of Mr. Allworthy's recovery, it would become them better to express the exultations of their hearts in thanksgiving than in drunkenness and riots, which were properer methods to increase the divine wrath than to avert it. Thwackham, who had swallowed more liquor than Jones, but without any ill effect on his brain, seconded the pious harangue of Blifel, but Square, for reasons which the reader may probably guess, was totally silent. Wine had not so totally overpowered Jones as to prevent his recollecting Mr. Blifel's loss, the moment it was mentioned. As no person, therefore, was more ready to confess and condemn his own errors, he offered to shake Mr. Blifel by the hand, and begged his pardon, saying, his excessive joy for Mr. Allworthy's recovery had driven every other thought out of his mind. Blifel scornfully rejected his hand, and with much indignation answered, It was little to be wondered at, if tragical spectacles made no impression on the blind. But, for his part, he had the misfortune to know who his parents were, and consequently must be affected with their loss. Jones, who, notwithstanding his good humour, had some mixture of the irascible in his constitution, leaped hastily from his chair, and catching hold of Blifel's collar, cried out, "'Done, you for a rascal! Do you insult me with the misfortune of my birth?' He accompanied these words with such rough actions that they soon got the better of Mr. Blifel's peaceful temper, and a scuffle immediately ensued which might have produced mischief, had it not been prevented by the interposition of Thwackham and the physician. For the philosophy of Square rendered him superior to all emotions, and he very calmly smoked his pipe, as was his custom in all broils, unless when he apprehended some danger of having it broke in his mouth. The combatants being now prevented from executing present vengeance on each other, betook themselves to the common resources of disappointed rage, and vented their wrath in threats and defiance. In this kind of conflict, 
Fortune, which, in the personal attack, seemed to incline to Jones, was now altogether as favourable to his enemy. A truce, nevertheless, was at length agreed on, by the mediation of the neutral parties, and the whole company again sat down at the table, where Jones, being prevailed on to ask pardon, and Blyfell to give it, peace was restored, and everything seemed in statu quo. But though the quarrel was, in all appearance, perfectly reconciled, the good humour which had been interrupted by it was by no means restored. All merriment was now at an end, and the subsequent discourse consisted only of grave relations of matters of fact, and of as grave observations on them. A species of conversation in which, though there is much of dignity and instruction, there is but little entertainment. As we presume, therefore, to convey only this last to the reader, we shall pass by whatever was said, till the rest of the company, having by degrees dropped off, left only Square and the physician together, at which time the conversation was a little heightened by some comments on what had happened between the two young gentlemen, both of whom the doctor declared to be no better than scoundrels, to which appellation the philosopher, very sagaciously shaking his head, agreed. End of chapter 9